Um, well, we are uh, in the midst of Advent season, and so we're going to take a look at uh, another text out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Last week we looked at um, the uh, Song of Mary. It was a, it's a song of triumph, and uh, it's called Mary's Magnificat, and it comes from the, the word magnify, where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And today we're going to look at um, another one of these songs of Luke uh, regarding the advent of Christ, the, the arrival of Jesus Christ, and it's Zechariah's uh, prophetic song where he's full of the Spirit and prophesies, and, and uh, this song is often called Benedictus, or historically has been called that. Um, I shouldn't say often because maybe you've never called it that, but it historically has been called Benedictus from the first word, bless, my soul, bless, blessed be the name of the Lord God, blessed be um, the Lord God of Israel. So we're going to take a look at that this morning. I'd encourage you. So what's in your bulletin we're not covering today? Um, Reed was going to preach, and he's not. So we're going to look at, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. 67 to 79. This is... Uh, prophecy from Zechariah who was John the Baptist's father and this was uh, you know his mouth was loosed if you remember the story he uh, questioned God's ability to give him a child and for that he was chastened by God and not allowed to speak for the duration of uh, Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy and uh, then it came time John was born and it came came time to name the child and when Zechariah gave him the name John, wrote it out for those who were gathered, uh, it says that he was filled with the Spirit and exclaimed this glorious song. Luke 1, 67 to 79, it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, and the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, uh, we gather here before you in the name of Jesus, and because that's how we gather, we are able to gather right before your throne. It's not just, uh, we're not just sitting in this geographical location in Ankeny, Iowa, in this particular room. Uh, because we are united to Christ, uh, he stands in your presence on our behalf. We have been brought to you. And uh, so, Father, I pray this morning that as we... Uh, uh, hear what your word has to say to us. I pray that you would give us listening ears. I pray that 
we would be attentive. I pray that your spirit would help me to communicate clearly and help your people here to understand and uh, be illumined by the scriptures. And I pray that as we wrap up this morning, that we, like Zechariah, would bless your name, that we would praise you. You are worthy of it, and we ought to give it to you, uh, no doubt more than we do. And so I pray that from our gathered time, as we look at this amazing prophecy, this song, this prophetic uh, song that Zechariah uttered, that we would uh, receive your revelation and be deeply encouraged to sing and to bless your name. Father, we pray for those who are not gathered here, and uh, especially, and I shouldn't say especially, but we pray for those who are um, not only physically ill, but also still, uh, still mourning and grieving, and that you would be near to them. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, when you read through the, uh, the text that we often look at this time of season, this time of year, uh, we call them the Advent passages. One thing that you notice is that there's this, there's this tone of longing and waiting. And it comes out in some of the songs that we sing. Not all of them, but some of them. Like the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where it says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile until, and who mo- that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. There's, this, there's a sense of longing and more, even mourning and waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, right? He had been promised. There seemed to be this anticipation that he was going to be coming and they were waiting for him. Now for us on this side of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Christ, we sometimes struggle with that. We, we only think of the joyous, merriment of this time, right? It's, it's a happy, happy time. We got lights and gifts and celebrations and uh, all of that. And we can, we can lose sight of what was going on in the hearts and lives of these people before Christ came, those who waited for him to come, those who were longing for him to come. It comes out uh, certainly in uh, Simeon, who, uh, if you remember the story of Sin- Simeon, after Christ was born, uh, his parents bring him into the temple uh, to, uh, to sacrifice on his behalf on the eighth day. And Simeon was there, this old man that God had promised he would see God's salvation before he died. And he picks up the child and he blesses God and he says, now I can depart in peace for I have seen your salvation. There's this, there's this anticipation, this longing. We can lose sight of that. Um, course we understand that there still is longing and groaning in this life right even the events of last week with the death of Cindy it's a reminder of that Um, but there's also a longing not just because of the circumstances we go through there is a longing for death to be fully and finally defeated and every other enemy to be put under the feet of Christ and so even this time of year for us, we, we look back and we celebrate what God has done in Christ for us, and we also look forward to what Christ is going to do when he returns. And, and you, you get the, these pictures in Revelation where every, um, everything that's wicked and vile and evil is going to be no more in the new Jerusalem, and 
God's gonna wipe away every tear and everything that's sad and produces sorrow is gonna be a thing of the past forever. Well, Zechariah has a song here, or his prophecy here uh, is, is a song that points us to what God is going to do in and through Christ. We look back and say what he has done, and we also look forward and, and we get a glimpse of what he's going to do. So we're gonna look at four different things from this song, okay? We're gonna look at uh, how Zechariah points to a God who redeems. We see that in this text. He points to a God who keeps his promises. He points to a God who shows mercy, and he points to a God who defeats our enemies, okay? He points to a God who redeems, okay? First, Zechariah points to a God who redeems. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, one way to look at the Bible is the Bible is the, the story of God's redemption. From, really, from Genesis 3 to the very end is the story of God's redemption, right? We see in the beginning, God created everything. He created everything good, and then it was terribly marred by sin. And in Genesis 3, God promised that there would be someone who would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then from Genesis 3, we see God begins this plan of redemption. And throughout this redemptive period, God visits and comes to his people and blesses his people and delivers his people. But every one of those deliverances and works of redemption is pointing forward to something far greater, namely the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, in, in, in throughout the Old Testament, we see God visiting his people. We see him appearing to his people in different ways. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He appeared to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's army. He appeared um, in the, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But this appearance or this visitation is fundamentally different that Zechariah prophesies about. He has visited and redeemed his people. This is different. What God is doing here in our text today, what Zechariah is prophesying about is fundamentally different. It is the coming of God in the flesh. The coming of God in the flesh. God is not just appearing to be a human being like he did sometimes in the Old Testament. He's not just appearing to his people like he did to Moses through the burning bush. He is actually stepping into his creation. He's becoming one of us. We see this in John chapter 1, in the prologue of John's gospel, when John says the following. You know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is pointing clearly to the eternality, the, the, the deity of, the, of Christ, but also that he, um, that, 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 he, that he came. And actually, verse 14 tells us that. Uh, kind of the, maybe you'd say the apex of that prologue where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, became man. And God has visited and redeemed his people in such a stupendous and glorious and amazing way. And it's not that Jesus just became a little bit like us. He became like us, the writer of Hebrews says, in every single way. Except, well, one really important way. He didn't sin. Right, that's a biggie. That's important, right? He became like us in every single way, except he didn't sin. And he became like us so that he might be the perfect kind of redeemer and high priest that we need to save us from our sins. This is a glorious condescension. This is a, this is a glorious visitation from God. And Zechariah, full of the Spirit, prophesies of this great act of God. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, many centuries ago, said this. I think this is powerful. Kind of helps just to encapsulate what happened in the coming of Christ. He said, man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain of living water might thirst, that the light might sleep, the way might be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation might be suspended on wood, speaking of the cross, that strength might grow weak, that the healer would be wounded, that life might die. This is a glorious condescension where God comes down to us and visits us in the most astounding way. I mean, no man could ever come up with this, work, this plan of redemption. Only a God who is both high and holy and meek and lowly could. And we see that in Christ. He is a God who redeems. He visits and redeems his people. We also see in this prophecy that a God who keeps his promise. And I don't know if you noticed last week as we made our way through the Magnificat or if you've ever thought about this as, as you read through it, but it is chock full of Old Testament. I mean, Mary was a young girl who knew her Bible well. And she understood the promises of God that God had made. And she sung, about, sung of it. She exalted in God regarding it. Well, Zechariah is the same way. Zechariah, he was, of course, a priest, uh, a temple priest, and so he would have known his scriptures well. But he highlights that God is a promise-keeping God. He says this, God has raised up a horn of salvation. The word horn, horn signifies strength and power. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. That's interesting, in the house of David. God has raised up salvation in the house of David as the prophets spoke beforehand. So God is doing something, and it has to do with, it's in relation to the house of David. And, of course, this points us to the covenant that God had made with David. David was a man after God's own heart. David was, when you think of the Old Testament kings, David was at the top of the heap. He was, he was the, 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 the man, right? And God had promised David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, and that he would sit on the throne eternally. So this is not a reference to Solomon 
Uh, This is a reference, of course, to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the true and better David who goes out and fights our battles, who is our king and our Lord. But we also see that Zechariah highlights this promise made to Abraham. Last year, uh, I think it was Christmas morning, um, I just did a short message on one verse, really obscure verse, I mean kind of obscure, um, in Matthew 1. Matthew 1 goes through like the genealogy of Christ. In one of those sections, you're like, eh, let's get past this, <laughs> you know, sometimes. But there's this interesting part where it says Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. God had made a promise to Abraham. What was the promise God made to Abraham that's highlighted here? Well, it's that Abraham's offspring. Well, actually, there's two promises I want to draw out. One is that Abraham's offspring, through Abraham's offspring, the entire world would be blessed. All the nations of the world would be blessed. Certainly, that goes beyond Isaac, right, and Jacob. It goes beyond them. It's pointing forward, and we know this from Paul's writings, it's pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham. Through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, all of the nations will be blessed. Every group of people, every ethnoi, every ethnicity is going to be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. That is an incredible hope that we have. Even today, Right? As the gospel goes forth, we can have confidence. God has promised the seed of Abraham is going to bless all the nations of the world. But there's another promise in Genesis 22 that God gave, and it was this, that the the offspring of Abraham would, um, would inhabit the gates of his enemies. I love that. That the the offspring of Abraham would defeat his enemies. Now, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we'll get to this in a little bit. But that is a glorious thing. We have real enemies. There are real enemies of the gospel. There are real enemies of ours. At the top of the list certainly is sin and Satan and death. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham's offspring would possess the gates of his enemies and that all the nations would be blessed through him. So Zechariah blesses God as a God who redeems and visits his people, as a God who keeps his promise, and he blesses God as a God who shows mercy. He's a God who shows mercy. There's two places this is drawn out. Verse 72 to show mercy promised to our fathers. And then at the end, it talks about the tender mercy of God. God is a God who shows mercy. And what a strange thing mercy is. Have you ever thought about how strange it is to, to, well, have you ever thought about how strange mercy and grace are? I mean, we live in a world where you get what you deserve right? You get what you deserve. And in a lot of, right, you get justice. And justice is a good thing. It is. We, we, we love that our God is a God of justice. We hope that there's justice that's done when evil perpetrators do evil things. But how strange it is 
for there to be such a thing as mercy and grace. God is a God who shows mercy. This, um, toward the end of our passage, it says, uh, talks about God's tender mercy. And it's, um, the word tender here, in some old translations, would say bowels. Right? Ever heard someone say bowels of mercy? Who's ever heard that before? Okay? This is talking about God's bowels of mercy. Because to speak of God's bowels and that being the seat from which his mercy flows, it's talking about how God's mercy comes from deep within. It's not happenstance. It doesn't just throw it around flippantly. It comes from deep within and it comes from, we use the phrase, hey, I love you from the bottom of my heart, right? Uh, What are we saying? I love you from the deepest part of me. And this is saying that God toward his people is merciful from the deepest part of him. Toward his people. He is deeply merciful. He has bowels of mercy. And notice how his mercy is toward those who need forgiveness. Isn't that that central to the idea of mercy? People who need forgiveness? His mercy doesn't go to, it doesn't go, you know, you've maybe heard that phrase. In fact, I heard this recently. I'm pretty sure somebody said this is in the Bible, and it's not. God helps those who help themselves. It's not there. The gospel is, now of course, once we're saved, we gotta get up and with the strength of the spirit, we're called to obey, no doubt. But the Bible is clear that God comes and rescues mercifully those who can't do anything to help themselves. Think of Ephesians 2. When we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And actually, I think it was before that, it says we were dead in our sins, but God who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now there, I think Paul's connecting grace and mercy. He's not, you know, sometimes people try to, you know, split those apart and say, well, mercy's this and grace is this. Ah, I just kind of, Paul puts them together. I guess I do too. So God is merciful. God is rich in mercy and gives the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Now think about how God has been merciful to you. What kind of impact ought that to have on your life? If God has been merciful to you, how should you live toward other people? Mercifully, right? What if, what if this, what if this, Christmas, what if the only thing that you remember, this would be really strange, but what if the only thing you remembered was bowels of mercy towards you? And that if impact, right, God is merciful all the way down towards you as his son and daughter. All the way down. Toward, at the bottom of himself, he is merciful towards you. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to live through this Christmas Advent season? Knowing his rich mercy 
and extending that mercy to others. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Mercifully extending forgiveness and grace and uh, uh, not, not holding on to bitterness and resentment and not toward others and being merciful toward those who don't deserve it because neither do we. Zechariah blesses God because he visits and redeems, because he keeps his covenant promises, and because he's a God who shows mercy. Then finally, Zechariah blesses God because he's a God who defeats enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, it, it, it's occurred to me recently that um, we kind of have an aversion to talking about enemies. Because Jesus said to love your enemies. And so, we're like, well, but it does say love your enemies. He doesn't say pretend that your enemies are your friends. He just says love them. We really do have enemies. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see uh, God going out as a warrior and fighting against Israel's enemies. Of course, they were God's enemies too. First, they were God's enemies. But he went out and fought against their enemies. And he routed them. And we have enemies today. There really are enemies of God's truth today. Now, we can say it's satanic underneath, no doubt. But he used, right? What's our memory text? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? There's all sorts of that. People with nice, shiny smiles and uh, nice presentation telling us lies. We're surrounded by it all the time. There are enemies today. There are enemies of the cross. There are enemies of the cross. Paul wasn't afraid to call those who were um, bringing a message into Philippi. He wasn't afraid to call them enemies of the cross. There are enemies of the cross. There are enemies of God's message and God's work of salvation. And we should pray that God conquers them. We really should. There's a lot of the Psalms. You ever read through the Psalms and you're like, wow, this is an interesting Psalm. They sang this about God demolishing his enemies. They did. (laughs) And we should too. We should pray that God conquers his enemies. But, I shouldn't say but, and our three greatest enemies really are sin and Satan and death. They really are sin, Satan, and death. And in the first coming of Christ, we see him defeating sin, Satan, and death, right? We see him defeating sin, Satan, and death. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, right? That's a, that is Jesus Christ going to battle against sin by bearing it on the cross in himself that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so that we might experience freedom from sin, 
right? Romans 6.14, we're no longer under sin's dominion or domination. We still battle sin, temptation, but we're not under its enslaving power because of the work of Christ. We, we see in Colossians 2 that Jesus defeated Satan. Hebrews 2 says the same thing, that, that through death he defeated the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who the, through the fear of death lived in lifelong slavery. Right? There's a real conqueror, there's a real victory over Satan that Christ accomplished in his first coming, no doubt. And we see that Jesus, through his resurrection, conquered death. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus, in his coming, defeated sin, Satan, and death. But sin, Satan, and death, for us, have not been completely eradicated. We still battle sin. It doesn't have dominion over us, but we still battle it. The devil is still like a roaring lion seeking to devour. He can't destroy us. Praise God for that. I think it was John Piper who said he's like a, he's like a lion without the fangs that can't devour us. But he does roar. He does tempt. He does, certainly it's because God allows him, but he does wreak great havoc in the lives of people. And of course, death still casts its shadow over every human being. And so while we bless God for defeating our enemies, we still long for the consummation of all things when he will put every enemy under his feet. I love this verse that, um, you know, I don't think I really understood until recently. I'm not saying I understand it perfectly, but it's in um, sec, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And it's in relation to the resurrection. And it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ has been raised from the dead He's been exalted and throned at the Father's right hand. And my understanding of this is that enemies are being put under the feet of Christ. The last enemy to be put under his feet is death. And we long for that, right? We, we, we long for that. We long for that final enemy that we hate. And we should. We long for it to be put under his feet. Our God is a God that we ought to bless because he visits and redeems his people. He keeps his promises. He shows great mercy and he defeats our enemies. He's defeated our enemies um, in his coming, in his death and resurrection and he will completely put them under the feet of Christ at his coming again. And so, This Christmas, blessed be the Lord God who redeems and visits, who who keeps his covenant promises, who shows rich mercy. 
who defeats his enemies and our enemies. Amen? Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, I thank you for this uh, time in your word.